I was in the sacristy getting ready for the 8 o'clock service this morning, and I logged onto my phone just to check Facebook really fast, and a friend of mine posted this little, this little meme that says, life's short. Make sure you spend as much time as possible on the internet arguing with strangers about politics. <laughs> Guilty as charged. So, Maybe this is a good weekend to remind ourselves of what this whole project, this whole religion thing, this whole humanity thing is supposed to be about. Because Jesus is finding himself in the middle of a pretty major partisan debate in this morning's gospel text. Uh, the text. The text tells us he's been disputing with the Sadducees, and they were like a political party in Jesus' day, right? The Sadducees were a more conservative group who held to a more ancient understanding of the traditions of Judaism, and according to some people, were in collusion, were cooperating with the Roman government, which made them politically and theologically suspect to some other groups, like the Pharisees, with whom Jesus seems to have had a relationship, but was sometimes aligned with. The Pharisees are one group, the scribes are another. They're kind of like the lawyers in the, in the scene, the lobbyists maybe. They're, the, they're responsible for a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of the law, and they're also your go-to guys if you need a, a marriage license or a divorce certificate or a contract for a land deal or something like that. The, the scribes are your guys in that, in that context. All of these are parties with particular theological and political commitments that are at odds with one another, and Jesus is in the middle of that debate this morning. There are arguing about scripture, politicians, theologians. For first century Jews, there was no real meaningful distinction between a theological argument and a political argument. Religion was politics, and politics was religion, and every disputed question came along with emotional triggers and partisan bickering and infighting and a whole host of backroom deals and shady political maneuvering. What a crazy world they lived in. Aren't you glad things are different today? The scribe is particularly impressed. The scribe is from the opposite political side of, ben Jesus, of Jesus, but he is impressed with how Jesus is, is comporting himself in this debate. It's a guy from, from the other side of the aisle offering a, a friendship branch across this deep divide. Some people have suggested that the scribe is baiting Jesus here because it wouldn't have made sense for Jesus and the scribe to be kinshipy in this, in this thing, but I want to I take the scribe at his word and assume best intentions when in the spirit of bipartisan friendship, he puts this famous question to Jesus amid all of the crazy stuff in the Bible, all of the strange rules about linen and cotton and pigs and copper pots. What is most important? I mean, in essence, the scribe is asking Jesus, what, what unites us? As Jews, as people of the land, as people of the book, in the middle of all of our squabbles, what is most important? Is it true that our divisions have grown so sharp that we are living in separate realities? Or is there still something that unites us that's more important than the stuff that divides us? What's essential? What's basic? What can we agree on? And can we figure out what that is? Jesus begins in a pretty safe place. He quotes the Shema. That's the prayer that observant Jews pray to this day at sunup and sundown. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's basic. Right? That's Judaism 101. That's like saying, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Everybody agrees on that. But who gets to decide what that looks like? And the scribe kind of pushes him a little bit further, right? How do you know that you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? In Jesus' world, that was a political question. 
Jesus knows that the scribe is looking for that level of an answer. The scribe is looking to peg him in some ways, right? He's not content with platitudes. He wants a real answer. Where do you stand, Jesus? So Jesus goes one step further. To this great commandment, he adds another commandment. uh, He pulls it. It's a more obscure commandment from the book of Leviticus. The full text goes like this. You must not hate your brother or sister in your heart. You must surely reprove your fellow citizen so that you do not incur sin on behalf of him. You must not take vengeance. You must not bear a grudge against the children of your own people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. That's Leviticus. In Leviticus, the commandment to love your neighbor is really about how you treat your own family, members of your own community, your literal neighbors, right? The people who live next door to you. And in a small community, that's likely to be people who are related to you, right? Or at least who share your, your basic framework. These are members of your tribe. In its original context, loving your neighbor means loving your tribe. That is where Jesus begins to radically depart from the received tradition that he has, that has been handed down to him, from the texts of his tradition. He expands this ancient definition of what it means to be a neighbor so that it encompasses not just people who look and think like I do, who like me or who belong to me. For Jesus, the neighbor is fundamentally and precisely that person who differs from me the most. Progressive Christians have have tended to turn the neighbor principle into a kind of do-gooder manifesto, right? Go and find as many hurting people as you can and inflict your goodness upon them. Um, And that's beautiful, that's lovely, but that's actually not what Jesus is talking about here. In Jesus' conception, I am a bleeding man by the side of the road, and my neighbor is a Samaritan. My neighbor, my neighbor is a member of a different religion than I am. He's part of a different philosophical system. He's from a different culture. He's of a different political persuasion. He's the guy who drives me crazy, right? The guy I crossed the street in order to avoid, the guy my mother warned me about, the guy I have been brought up to fear. In Jesus' parable, that is the one. It's my greatest enemy who comes over and, like, inserts himself in my situation. He becomes my neighbor. For Jesus, that means he has something to teach me. Right? He's the one from whom I have something to learn, the one whom I need. Jesus is actually not interested in the question, who is my neighbor? Right? How can I inflict myself upon somebody else? Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus reframes that question. He says, that's the wrong question. Don't ask, who is my neighbor? The question is, to whom am I the neighbor? That's a slight difference grammatically. That is a huge difference theologically. And I got to wonder what our world would start to look like if we started asking not who is my neighbor, to whom am I obligated, who's my tribe, where are my people, what do they think about X, Y, or Z thing, how do I stand in solidarity with my tribe, but rather to ask Jesus' much more radical question, to whom am I a neighbor? To whom do I belong? And Jesus says, my neighbor is actually not the person who needs me. My neighbor is the person whom I need. You don't need me to stand up here and tell you that we live in a world that has largely forgotten about the ancient art of neighboring. We are not wired to do this well. 
We're not actually wired to do it at all. Neighboring does not come naturally. We actually have to kind of learn this stuff because there is, there's nothing in our brainstem or in our evolutionary makeup that is designed to overpower the built-in suspicion that each one of us carries against those who are different from us, the ones who are not a part of our tribe. We are wired to see difference and to fear it for very good evolutionary reasons. That is the wiring that has kept us safe. But it is also the wiring that has inoculated us against the transformative power of learning how to be good neighbors. And all true religious teaching, whether it comes from the mouth of Moses or Jesus or the Buddha or Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, all true religious teaching is primarily about this conundrum. How do I learn how to reprogram my brain so that the innate fear and disgust that I experience in regards to people who are different from me can be overcome, that I might stand a ghost of a chance of experiencing the salvation that is on offer to me in the person of my neighbor. There's a 20th century theologian who has put it this way. He says, there is, there is no pathway to God. There is no pathway to God that bypasses the sacrament of my neighbor. Learning to connect with my neighbor is the only way to God. There is no other path. And we're deluding ourselves if we think we can get there by another way. So my neighbors these days are people to whom I am getting into Facebook and Twitter arguments with online. Some of my neighbors are people in this congregation and people who are outside it, who are challenged and offended by some of the things I've said, positions I've taken. My neighbors to the left of me on the political spectrum are people who are taken Trinity to task for instituting blanket background checks and are dismayed that we're praying for our president by name. People who think that we're a country club parish full of rich white people and that I'm not doing enough to challenge you on your racism and sexism and homophobia and xenophobia. And there is truth in that voice. I don't always agree with that voice. It makes me angry and defensive when it comes at me on Twitter. But it's a voice and a perspective that I need to keep me honest because that voice is one of my neighbors. And my neighbors to the right of me are those of you who have been challenged by some of the actions and positions that I have taken, that this cathedral has taken, particularly in regard to immigrants and refugees, but on a whole host of issues, gun control and sexuality and homelessness, the environment, and that voice is precious to me. It is my neighbor, too. I need you. I need the way you think. I need the compassion that you bring to complicated questions, the deep convictions that sometimes differ from my convictions, but that inspire me and invigorate me nonetheless. I mean, sometimes, some days it feels like we're in the middle of this push-pull where everybody's mad about something. And those are the days when I think, boy, howdy, the Spirit is doing something weird and incredible in this congregation, in this city, in this nation, because I feel like I'm getting it from all sides, and maybe that's a sign of health. Like, what if we can learn how to reframe conflict, not as dysfunction, but as the opportunity for transformation? Because this is God's great and diverse community, right? We are people who fight with one another, people who argue back, people who don't just take a priest's word for it, but are empowered enough to say, no, LaRue, you got this one wrong, right? I'm upset, I'm mad, and I care enough about you to sit down and talk with you about it. Those are my holiest days. Those are the best conversations I have in this job. Because those are the days I get to be somebody else's neighbor. I get the opportunity 
to overcome my own rampant reactivity and defensiveness, long enough to listen to how somebody's feeling, what sets them off, what makes them angry, what makes them afraid. They're holy moments, because in those moments, it does not matter whether or not we agree with one another. What matters is that we love one another. That's all, and that is everything. Because for Jesus, love your neighbor is not good advice. It's not a self-help maxim. It's not something to aspire to on your best day. You don't get a pass on this one. For Jesus, learning to love my neighbor is a commandment. Love your God as fiercely and as fully as you know how. And the way you do that is by learning how to love your neighbor as yourself. That means you've got to know how to love yourself. For some of us, that is the hardest part. But we don't get to stop there. This cathedral has taken as its mission statement, its whole raison d'etre, this project of neighboring well. It is the only reason that we exist. And some days I think it's the hardest work we're doing. I don't know how it's going to come out. I don't know if we're going to fall apart in the process of doing it in this weird and crazy time that we're living in. Some days it's like the anger and the vitriol and the conflict is so intense and the stakes are so high and the work is just exhausting. I get it. I know that you feel this too. We don't like it. I want people to like me and that's a hard reality, but we are not given another option. Jesus says that these are the two commandments. Everything else in this tradition stems from these core principles, and they are hard. They are hard work, and they are life. They are the life of this world, and they are the doorway into the life that is to come. Jesus learns this lesson from his own political enemy. The scribe says, this is a lot more important than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is more important than religious differences, political differences, governmental actions, whatever, all of this, this is more important than that. Love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, seeing that his opponent answers wisely, says to him, truly I tell you, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, Nobody asked him any more questions because they got it.